welcome listeners to another episode of Filmed in Canada, a podcast about Canadian movies. Uh, today I've got two very special guests with me, but before we get to that, I'm Alexander Cairns, and I'm joined today by... I'm Will Ross, filmmaker. I'm Devin Scott, also a filmmaker. Yeah, so uh, I've met Devin and Will through the local Vancouver cinema scene. I've met Devin, I think, originally um, at like a charity event. You, yeah, were, yeah. you were shooting it, and uh, we just got to talking. But um, I guess you guys have been making shorts and features for a couple of years now? Yeah, I'd say we, we've kind of been uh, working together since late 2011, I would say, is when we really started working together. Yeah, that's when it really took off. Yeah, I, I got him at the last minute to edit one of my student films. And because uh, I literally had no time left, and I was desperate. And then he did a much better job than I could, and I thought, oh, well, shit, I guess I better get like somebody better than me to help. But uh, we'd been friends for years before that, and, uh, and uh, that's how it started. <laughs> I was in the middle of a miserable, miserable experience in film school at the time, where I just, and I was ready to quit filmmaking, just thinking, if this is what filmmaking's like, I'm out. And then editing for Devin, whom I had been best friends with for a few years at that point, sort of reawakened my interest in filmmaking and the possibilities that were open. So that's how that started. Awesome. Um, yeah, so I, I approached you guys just saying, hey, we got this new podcast, wanted mm -hmm. to bring you on uh, under the guise of talking about your own movies, but also um, just a couple of other notable Canadian films that you'd want to discuss. And other notable Canadian films. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The, the lesser the lesser films. Yeah. Less notable than the output of Sad Hill Productions, is it? Yeah. 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 Or media. We haven't really Sad Hill media. it tends to change depending on what we do. Yeah. Or set just Sad Hill sometimes. Productions is our production wing where we keep our studio a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's the big one next to Bridge Studio. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. We Three Heathens, I guess you you, and uh, another co-producer, partner of yours, of five years. Yeah, <laughs> Daniel, uh, you guys decided to, as non-religious individuals, take a pilgrimage through, it, does it start in France? It started, there's like half a day in France. Yeah, so st starting in France, heading into Spain along the Camino. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not overly familiar with this part of the world, but I guess it's a, it's a, a popular and uh, infamous walk that usually religious people take. Yeah. Uh, but you guys decided to take this walk as a way to challenge your atheism. Is that fair to say? Yeah, in part, I think. Almost the challenge goes both ways, where we're kind of challenging our atheism and challenging the spirituality of the walk. Yeah. Where, yeah. And it's worth noting that we're um, not the. Uh, there's it is I think mostly religious people who walk it still, but it's an increasingly just uh, there's an increasing sort of touristy sense around it. Yeah. Where there's a lot of secular people. And then people like us go, you know. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so I guess you had this idea, and then you did, was was the first thought. Okay, how are we going to get the money to do this? And you go on Indiegogo, or how do you how, how did the whole process develop? 
Um, I think it's, uh, I'll start because it's something that sort of started with me. Is that um, I on, a, on an internet forum I I, uh, I kind of frequent. Uh, I saw this kind of described this almost like photo journal, but in form of like an internet post of his you know of his big pilgrimage. And he said he walked 800 kilometers, and I thought like, oh, this seems so interesting. You know, he's kind of like yeah, uh, doing a whole thing. And then kind of in the years following that, I kind of got interested in making movies that. Uh, deal with spiritual and religious themes um, from kind of an atheistic standpoint uh, although I got a lot less kind of, I got a, I got a lot less militant atheist as I got older but I kind of um, kept trying to you know kept being interested in the idea of, of uh, sort of films that deal with spirituality and religion so um, it was always in the back of my mind and then uh, kind of once my I did my kind of a grad film which was about that subject you know took us to Toronto uh, for the film festival, uh, I got, I got, we got a lot of really positive reinforcement for the idea that I was pitching, and then me and Will ended up pitching together, um, and then we kind of brought Daniel into it uh, as the third person, and then uh, we slowly started kind of getting it going. Uh, the funding kind of came about once we did the numbers, and we went, oh God, <laughs> yeah. we'll never do this. So we, tr you know, we tried to get government funding and. Uh, all sorts of you know like roots and the one that ended up working was crowdfunding which you never hear about you know it, about it working but it did for us somehow and uh well it seems like there's more and more examples of it working yeah as time goes on i mean even mm -hmm. even something like anonalisa that started as a as a kickstarter i think it was kickstarter not indiegogo but so. yeah it started as a short that they were trying to fund and they couldn't get the money for it and then they were only supposed to create like 30 minutes of footage and then by the end of it they just kept scraping together more and more cash so that they could turn it into a feature but yeah. uh, that one and then uh, even like Jodorowsky's funding his new his new project through That's Kickstarter right. or at least a portion of it how is Zach Braff yeah, yeah. <laughs> sophomore effort yeah or, or uh, what, Paul Schrader's masterpiece The Canyons that was crowdfunded <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the canyons. I have. Don't watch it. No. <laughs> but, but yeah, the, the the so I think one of the things that helped us make it really work and get uh, get some traction. Obviously, friends and family are, are the biggest sort of reliable base that you can get yeah. for uh, crowdfunding something for obvious reasons. But one of the thing that allowed us to expand that to sort of wider circles, you know, first of all, like. Friends of friends, uh, people on internet forums that we uh, that we cycle through, and then better yet, people who are just generally interested in the subject matter, is that the film sort of takes as its big thing. There's the secularist slash atheist on a pilgrimage, on a religious pilgrimage angle, right? But to me, the even more interesting idea of it, that's, that's sort of the thematic idea, but the interesting part of it, as far as the presentation goes, was that we weren't interested in doing um, a documentary with voiceover, um, sort of a, the typical travelogue where yeah. you, know, you get lots of stylized or sped up shots and really distanced from the action. And it's like reading a pamphlet in movie form, right? And we really didn't want to do that, and so we really stressed the idea of three separate first-person accounts yeah. that would hopefully diversify sort of the scope of the experience and the emotions that we go through and make it viscerally palpable to the viewer. Yeah. And so that was what we sold it on. And I think that it's, it's a good way to crowdsource a movie. But uh, one interesting thing is that there's a difference between uh, being able to get 
the money to make a movie and being able to sell that movie. Right. That's a good way of putting it. I didn't think of that crap. <laughs> yeah, but, but to your to your point of it being these three first person accounts, actually that that was one of the things I noticed when I was watching it that there weren't any like you said, sped up vistas or anything like that. There weren't those prototypical elements yeah. of a, like you could almost consider it a nature documentary in a, in its time lapses of format. mountains with a cross in the foreground. That's yeah, and like at that, you've seen that a thousand times. So I, I found it really interesting that it, a lot of time was spent in hostels, um, you know, sitting on the side of the path as you guys are complaining about your your flat feet or whatever right like it, it presents a very different understanding of what people would sort of romanticize in their minds of what this thing should be yeah and i think um we, part of it was trying to consciously go against the thing that everyone's always done but i think um on, in a wider sense it was, it was kind of born out of you know like our actual feelings about the trip where you know we came back and we had all this footage that kind of reflected our really ambivalent feelings throughout. Like, yeah. And then that ambivalence kind of intensified through the editing process, which was probably just as traumatic as making the movie, honestly. Yeah. Like, that There are moments in the editing process where I just, there was some very emotional moments where I just, like, you know, had kind of breakdowns, you know. An intense, passionate, traumatic ambivalence. Yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, essentially, uh, Will put it uh, really well. Uh, he says, um, you know, we had to spend a month and a half suffering and then uh, on the pilgrimage, and then once he was back, he had to spend six months um, reliving the worst parts yeah. <laughs> over and over. Yeah, because you wanted to distill all the worst parts into the finished document. Yeah, <laughs> so, or at least all the, all the most... Um, Interesting parts, which were all the worst parts. Yeah. <laughs> so you just get locked in a shrieking death spiral with your worst self, and yeah. you just pray that there will be a movie at the end of it at all. Since we premiered, I haven't been able to watch it again. I have not watched it since we premiered. Well, technically, it hasn't premiered. We've only done a private screening, yeah. which is why it's not 2014 or 2015 or even 2016 yet. Yeah, right. yeah. It's. <laughs> but back to your your point about presenting this different side of of the experience or 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 at the very least presenting your own unique experience of this walk rather than the travelogue version of it yeah. um I, what i found interesting as well was the contrasting between that and then the the other people that you interviewed and who did in a lot of cases have these romanticized ideals of what mm -hmm. they hoped to achieve and hadn't hadn't been beaten down by the weeks of rain and and physical pain and bed bugs and every all, all the all these trials that you encounter, you don't see that pessimism in in these other people. They're all they're all sort of imagining a version of this thing that maybe maybe they maybe they are experiencing it, but maybe they're also just presenting it to the audience that will ultimately see this documentary because they're they're just hoping that. They, they want to come off positive, whereas you guys don't, just didn't seem concerned with how you came off at all. Yeah. One of the big things about the documentary was um, the documentary is sort of almost an attack on symbolism, on the idea of um, us uh, sort of attaching ourselves to symbols as a way to uh, signify our own growth, but how those symbols in and of themselves, just because you attach yourself to them, don't necessarily 
cause growth or cause you to become a different person, you know. Suffering is a good way to encourage self-contemplation, but it's not enough in and of itself, you know. If you just tell yourself, I've suffered, therefore I've learned, well, that's not entirely true. Yeah. So what did you learn? Um, oh, man. <laughs> that's the toughest question, maybe. Um, I think I... Will do you have a better answer than uh? <laughs> well, there were some conversations near the end where you're on Skype with your parents or whatever, and yeah. they're asking you these types of questions. What did you learn? What are you getting out of this? Yeah. Have you changed your ideas about religion or anything like this? And, and your responses are, are generally just like, nothing's changed. I haven't come to any grand revelations. Yeah. Still generally the same person. Yeah. I actually wouldn't say I learned as much from the Camino as I did just making the film yeah where almost um i kind of learned while making it a lot about i kind of i came to a lot of decisions in my life while making it that i don't think i would have come to otherwise you know like uh, a decision to finally you know uh, break up the roomie's house <laughs> i came to that while kind of making the film uh i moved out right after we finished pretty mm -hmm. much um you know which was a very like uh, positive thing in my experience just in terms of like uh, I'm glad I did it, but at the same time, I feel like my it wasn't due to like adversity or anything. It was, um, but anyways, like uh, that kind of decision kind of came about because of the film and making the film. And I think, you know, it, it, like it, it kind of it was such an extreme experience that it pushed me to consider things about myself that I wouldn't have considered otherwise. Um, but what exactly those things are, are kind of vague to me still. I, I just I get a general sense of like, yeah, that was important. Why was it important? Yeah. Uh, well, and if I could posit a, a theory, I guess, on that front, maybe, like you say, it was more so in creating the film that you may have learned things or changed or, or anything like that, but because you're still in the process of, of getting it out into the world, you don't have the perspective of yeah. what, what it's really taught you. And I'd say the same is true of the Camino. Like, I, I think I do have some answers. I mean, on a broad level, I think uh, I learned to respect myself better after uh, that trip. And you don't see that reflected in the footage because the footage stops right after we get home, right? right? Um, but we tried in the editing process to be true to that experience of, you know, getting home and feeling completely directionless while at the same time suggesting that there are still things to learn ahead. ahead. So it's not a completely directionless movie where we just stay totally static. I think you can see changes in all of us in, as you watch the movie. And they became more and more apparent to us as we were editing. And we noticed these sort of character arcs forming and they helped the movie along. Yeah. But yeah, for my part, uh, there was sort of uh, more of a willingness to respect myself and to be patient with the things that I wasn't satisfied with in my own life. And um, it's tough, though, to come to massive paradigm-shifting conclusions on something as fundamental to your worldview as uh, religion. I, uh, Devin and I have a couple of... Uh, close friends who are Catholic, and sometimes uh, when we're getting into debates with each other, um, you sort of realize that underlying your differences, at the end of the day, you have to get back to the point of um, being able to prove that there is or isn't a God, right. and you know, like, that's, that's, no, that's no mean feat, right, even if you're 
going so, through a month and a half of intense, laborious, physical suffering. That's yeah. again, and like, uh, you can't get to the point where you're like, is this thing I even want to tackle? <laughs> yeah. But you learn smaller things, though. Like, you, you realize things about the institutions within certain ideologies, like uh, just encounters with unexpected casual racism, right? Um, I was going to ask you guys about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 that guy. <laughs> yeah. The, the gentleman who suggested that no black people Why no have have black been, have, have, haven't been on the Camino specifically because they don't have motivation. I think that was the... The yeah, motivation what? is different, is his phrasing. Yeah. Okay. And it's, it's ambiguous. To, to me, it's ambiguous whether or not he's saying the motivation is different because they have no motivation or the motivation is different um, because they, are motiva- they have motivation but it's not to find God or the motivation is different because they already have a prior connection to God. Yeah. But any one of those presumptions... You're either, you're either saying these people have no connection to God or you're buying into you know, a very old magical you know, black person stereotype. Which is like, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I mean to me it just came across that, like the more logical explanation for why a certain group of people hadn't been on this thing is because it wasn't culturally important to them. Yeah, like there may be other pilgrimages that other ethnicities or other, you know what I mean? Like it's just it's just irrelevant whether or not a certain group of people has been yeah. on this thing, like, and it definitely did come off as casually racist. Yeah. And uh, having lived in Switzerland for a year. I can definitely attest to the casual racism that exists in Europe. Yeah. Guys, how, how many, how many uh, like Spanish people are in Tibet doing Buddhist pilgrimages? You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true enough. Yeah, it, it it wakes you up too to the fact, and this is another example of like the sort of death of symbolism thing, where you know people talk about the Camino being this like people who walk the Camino. Sometimes they are so I don't want to say over the top, but they're really I think it's fair to say effusive about their affections for the Camino and its cultural importance where they talk about people from all over the world. It's such a, like they'll describe it in terms of being a melting pot or being this, this sort of like an all encompassing cultural experience or an enlightening one that connects you to all of humanity. And they think, well, you, you just look around and you go, well, the simple fact that there, there's no black people yeah. kind of in some ways disqualifies it from such lofty praise yeah. on a mere statistical level. Like, it's not fair to attach, like, such secular means of analysis to, to an ostensibly spiritual event. But I think it's fair to say that it's... And maybe it's a byproduct of an increasingly secular touristy approach to the Camino that it, it becomes this sort of feel-good self-help thing uh, rather than a specific connection to God. And there's, I think, some engagement in the film with... Um, a, the, so that sort of secular feel-good idea as well and some criticism of that but yeah I I sort of rambled there but well, I, I think yeah, a lot of people going to the Camino uh, I probably said this exactly in the film I can't remember though but a lot of people going to the Camino kind of um, with an idea of what it's going to be before they go in and an idea of the person they're going to be at the end like oh this will do this to me and yeah. then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because that's what they went in wanting mm-hmm. right um, so uh, and the question is like how much of that is how much of that can be genuine and I still don't know. <laughs> yeah. So back to the crowdfunding aspect of it and your uh, your attempts to, to get government funding as well and, and yeah. whatever uh, other avenues. I'd like to get a better understanding of that because obviously we're a 
podcast about Canadian movies and unique to American cinema, there there is more government support for filmmakers, but it seems like you didn't you you weren't the recipients of that support. So what was your experience in in applying for grants or whatever whatever avenues you took and what sort of what sort of resistance did you get where where what was the feedback like how how does the process work and what is your takeaway yeah what's your understanding of it um i sort of spearheaded the funding of the film i guess in terms of actually applying um we basically there's only there's not many grants <laughs> out there um basically the, the two major ones in bc are canada council of the arts which um the deadline just didn't line up with us and we didn't really have anywhere near like the resume to do it so we i, I applied to bc arts council which um which involves like sending in like a 12 page proposal and full budget and it took me about two weeks of work to do yeah um and uh you also have to get like a few like you know quote unquote like you know known kind of figures in your artistic community to vouch for you so i got you know one of my uh, professors and a, a friend of mine to uh to vouch for me, so we sent it all in, and then uh, they rejected got, us. Yeah, well, they, they never really got back to us. <laughs> you know, just, just didn't but, even respond. Yeah, well, like you get the confirmation, hey, we got your stuff, and then I didn't hear back from. No news again. is bad news. Yeah, I got. So you'll find out five years from now that you got your funding. And yeah, it's like, oh yeah, right, well, like, congratulations, <laughs> you can go to the Camino again. Uh, if we got that funding in. Yeah, in like five years, I legitimately would be interested in doing a sequel. Yeah, just because it would be too serendipitous. To like <laughs> I still think in twenty years we should do a sequel, Old Heathens. You know. Yeah. Um, and uh, but so that obviously didn't work. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, it's tough when you've got um, no clout. <laughs> yeah, 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 and and it's understandable too, right? Where you've got a couple of kids who have never made like kid like mid twenties, right? Who have never really made a Splash in their community. Early twenties at that point, we were twenty three. Yeah, yeah, true enough. Well, that counts as mid, but but <laughs> depending on your definition of early to mid to late, I, I would count it as early. Well, I stare mortality in the face every day of my life, so I, I count it as mid twenties. <laughs> but but it, it's 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 tough when you've got no real clout and you go, okay, I can understand that, and you think, well, at the end of the day, like we are white males, and like they do, like if if. They've got a few in a tide, then they'll default to people who are not white males, under underrepresented, right? Yeah, and that's I, I'm fine with that. And that's yeah, yeah that's, that's that's completely fair. So it, it's disappointing when you don't get the grant, but it's not. Yeah, I wasn't. Also, I wasn't surprised at all when you didn't get the grant. Yeah. Okay. Um, I can't. I, would, would the grant have covered your costs in full and then some, or and then not? Some, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. The, it's twenty to thirty thousand, and I asked for I believe twenty. Okay. Um. So that would have cost that like. That had, would have doubled our the budget that we actually made the film on. Yeah. Okay. We, we made the film on seventeen, but then we resold most of the gear for you know six or so. So we ended up spending like eleven hundred or eleven thousand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like yeah. Um. But yeah. So essentially, like county council was out, and uh, BC Arts Council rejected us. So you and I kind of knew that was going to happen. So at the mm -hmm. same time as that. We you know did the crowdfunding. Um, and it, it, Western Canada is a bit, most of Canada really, outside of Quebec and to a lesser extent Ontario, um, has a real paucity of like actual organizations that will fund films. Um, right. You have NFB, but they're more for like finishing funds and for documentaries for good causes. 
Um, and, it seems uh, like they do a lot of animation. They do a lot of animation, yeah. and their animation yeah. is great. Like, yeah, their animation branch is absolutely like. Yeah. I don't know, I've never heard anyone complain about the NFB's animation branch, and I certainly wouldn't join that. Yeah. Like, NFB animated films are, like, a something that around the world people actually have heard of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the, and like, you know, they do great work and really interesting work. We've got McLaren, right? Yeah, we have McLaren. But um, the only really part of Canada with a lot of arts funding is Quebec, and, you know, as a result, they make the lion's share of good movies. Yeah, so Quebec has a ton of local organizations and uh, you know government, private, you name it, that are just funding young artists and and even international funding. Yeah, like yeah, Xavier Dolan's stuff. I'm pretty sure has been co-financed with France. And, yeah, yeah. Look at what happened with Denis Villeneuve. You know? Yeah, and you know he just you know, exploded. And, you know, he for years and years would just make films in Quebec. You know? yeah. yeah, Quebecois filmmakers just get like such a springboard, uh, largely from. Government funding. So what was the yeah. last time a non-Quebecois filmmaker actually like started getting like a lot of like international, international funding? Sarah Pauly maybe. Yeah. Although I guess she's she's yeah. not she's not getting international funding at this point I guess. But although Take This Waltz was that international? I don't know. The point being that it she probably, yeah. actually it probably would have been a co-production to some extent because it had yeah. uh, quite a few American actors. She's in on maps outside of Canada. Yeah. Point yeah. Sure. Yeah. But and then, it's been Oscar nominated. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But nonetheless, I mean, not to. And this isn't, uh, I mean, like, the, the Dennis Villeneuve, I think, is, like, one of the most exciting filmmakers to get Hollywood funding in recent years, I think, as far as, like... From any country, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think so. Like, uh, a lot of people ha are pretty measured on Prisoners. But and, they're wrong. And, yeah, I'm, like, Prisoners is one of my favorite films of the last uh, few years. I think it's a great example of a director taking, like, fairly hack work and, and just bringing such, breathing such life and fire into it. I'm going to say it. Well, yeah, William and I uh, recorded on Anime recently. We haven't posted it yet, but um, we had, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things to yeah. talk about in that movie for sure. Yeah. Um, and Sicario was excellent as well. Yeah, yeah I really like Sicario too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you move west, uh, the further west you move, the less you see those art house what holes being filled. Yeah, yeah, to an extent, but I mean... Uh, I mean, for for a town with very small, virtually no film yeah. industry presence, you know, you had you know Isaiah Medina come out in the past couple of years, and you've had Guy Madden continue to make films there. But it's not like I mean, especially Isaiah, like there's Guy Madden for sure, but especially well, Isaiah had moved to Toronto, so yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Those guys are still getting a lot of their funding. Isaiah Medina, to just just to back up, I guess yeah. um, he he's released a, a film. Yeah, he released his debut 88, feature. 88. Yeah, yeah. And that hit Tiff. Yeah. Which is a really fascinating year. experimental film that a lot of people are just, like, in the Canadian uh, critic and filmmaking circles are just, like, nuts about. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, point being, you move west, there's less of that. You get into Vancouver, and Vancouver is effectively a service town, right, where we serve larger productions and we sell ourselves as that. And the films that get funded here, um, by corporate entities at least, tend to be very safe that um, hew to uh, sort of Hollywood standards of production value. Yeah. And so there's more of a focus on living up to traditions of quality and awards bait than there is creating a really vibrant, unique, essential local cinema. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that to do with uh, institutional inertia or what have you. But it puts you in a difficult position when you're trying to fund a film. And even when you're trying to fund 
a documentary that we felt had a fairly broad appeal. Um, you just, you like, we had no experience and so we couldn't fund it, right? Yeah. But then what's tougher, do you mind if I segue into festivals? Yeah, that's what I was going to be my next point anyway. Yeah. Great. Um, it's, we're, we were kind of proven wrong. Yeah. <laughs> to, to sort of preface the discussion of festivals, whenever you're talking about your film not performing as you would like to at festivals, I think you have to quickly disclaim, you know, I think my film is pretty good, but I mean, I'm me, so maybe, maybe my film's, you know, not good. Maybe outside yeah. of people I know or people who are excited for me because they're from my hometown or people who are hosting podcasts that I'm talking on or, or whatever, right? I don't want to put words on your mouth. You have an expressive <laughs> opinion. But, you know, uh, uh, people tend to talk up their film. And so there's a possibility with what I'm saying that it all just defaults to the film's not good enough to get real traction from reputable festivals, right? Yeah. Now that said, I feel like... But hey, Brooklyn got traction. What we've, we've spoken... <laughs> <laughs> we've spoken to uh, people who program festivals, who, um, who work closely with festivals, to other filmmakers, who have, who have a fair amount of skin in the game. And what they've told us, generally speaking, is that they don't think our film is bad, we haven't spoken specifically to programmers who have been responsible for rejecting our film, but again, people with skin in the game. And their consensus is that they think our film is really interesting. And even a, a fairly prominent local programmer uh, told us that he thinks that programmers would want to watch what we do in the future, which is really encouraging. But it's more of a matter of programmability. Right. So you think, okay, so documentary, so there's an odd, so you put that in the documentary slot, and you think, okay, travelogue, you put that in the travelogue slot. But the problem is... It doesn't function as a travelogue. It's not a conventional travelogue, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's not experimental enough that you can shift it from traditional documentary uh, positions into the sort of avant-garde documentary slot that's getting... I think more and more traction in yeah. festivals in the last Which is years. Great. Yeah, for sure. Like the sensory ethnography lab guys, um, uh, Oppenheimer, like all those. Like, it's great to see that expanded beyond like Herzog, um, and so it's really even though you get like I mean, and those those that's a fairly broad. Those are two fairly broad canvases, right? And yeah. I'm simplifying a little bit, but we sort of fall through. The cracks, right? Because and it, and it's really minute the ways that your film, again, from what we've been told, it might just be them getting walking around telling us that it's bad. But, yeah. but it's really easy to to fall through the cracks of um, of not fitting into a certain programming block or a paradigm or 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 a needed schedule and it can be as simple as our documentary is 100 minutes instead of 80 minutes and mm -hmm. most people would think an hour and 40 minutes isn't a crazy amount of time to spend with any movie and that and wouldn't think twice about watching a documentary that long but it makes a big difference when you're programming and festivals. One, and one thing i've only really kind of become more conscious of since making the doc is that a lot of docs that get programmed are between 60 and 75 minutes mm -hmm. um, that's yeah. just a common link for documentaries and our documentary kind of became a comfortable length at 100 minutes, unfortunately, which right. is, uh, you know, unless you're making an extremely good film or uh, the variety of other reasons it can, is, is basically a mark against your film. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I watched it in two chunks, but I would certainly say that it doesn't suffer from its running time. Like, 
it, there there are enough sort of plot developments along the way that that it kept my interest throughout right I, I i can't see that being an issue but it seems like you're saying more of a logistical problem i'm in terms of programming yeah to sidetrack us a bit just momentarily i'm really proud of the and i've only realized in the last couple of weeks i'm really proud of the editing job on that film and yeah. it's yeah it's sort of um there's not any kind of traditional act structure to the film and yeah, I think it paces really nicely. It juggles different themes and ideas and plot strands really nicely. And it's constantly moving around it, um, and it never condescends to the audience. While at the same time, it never lets itself become obscure. Um, there's lots of neat graphic cuts, but anyway, you can, <laughs> you can cut that all. I just, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good about it. But, but well, I, you you need you need to sell it to someone because the the people that you've been selling it to thus far haven't been buying it. Yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but uh, but, but anyway. to be fair, I I can't even guarantee that there's more than ten people that are going to listen to this thing. So yeah. hey, 10 <laughs> I can't promise any any. But to those ten people, exposure. please call your local telephone yeah. representative and let them know you want to see this movie in theaters. <laughs> That's ten more people than I've ever seen in a festival. Yeah, but <laughs> anyway, um, one of the things about that is, I mean, we spent we we really worked our asses off editing that film. I mean, like I forty hours to fifty hours a week for six months. Basically. Yeah, I accrued I accrued some debt <laughs> um, editing that film because I couldn't. I couldn't keep going to school and I couldn't uh, hold time a job. It was hold down a job. It was such an all encompassing thing to work on. Yeah. All that said, we worked really hard and for a good amount. I mean, six months is it's pretty quick to edit together a hundred minute film, especially one that I feel is as tight as this. It came from a hundred plus hours of footage. Yeah. Too, so. <laughs> but you know, it comes back to you would think that it would be easier to produce a sixty to seventy five minute film if you have less resources, less assumed scope but it can actually become harder because you're in the editing room and you don't have other people who can take on crunches for you or who can handle some dirty work for you and you don't have the time to keep on mulling over the structure and think okay what can I afford to lose to keep this just as good as it is now but mm -hmm. punch it down and make it marketable I don't regret the film I made at all I, I, I'm really proud of it um, I also know we if we made if, if, if we had started editing it today having not the baggage that already spent six months on it, uh, I think it would have been a markedly different film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it would have probably been uh, pushed, I, I probably would have pushed more avant-garde yeah. uh, in, in, in the editing and made it probably less kind of um, accessible to a conventional storytelling framework, yeah. um, is what I would do. Um, and that is less of an actual, like, I feel in my heart artistic decision and more of a, Hey, I think I would like to make a film like this, and also people would probably be more likely to want to see it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah you've changed. Have you have you considered recutting it? No, <laughs> no. I I tell you what, I would recut it if I basically got a directive or a mandate or or a real demand for it. Um, like it like if, if people us. said I really want to see this, mm -hmm. then that not so much because I would feel like. I mean, a commission would help, but not so much that I would feel commissioned, but just if you get the spark of, oh, somebody really wants to engage with my work in a certain way, right? It's exciting to, the idea to give that to them. But yeah. right now, like, no, the film's, I'm totally happy with the film. I would make it differently today, like Devin said, but that doesn't mean 
I would change something. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, I think there are, there are certain films I made in the past where I would change something, and I am unhappy about that. Yeah. But this isn't one of them. I'd say. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I there's certain moments where like, oh, I wish I recorded the sound on that moment a bit yeah. better, or I wish I'd held the camera a little steadier, or oh, we got this moment but not the one right after it. But that's just that's just sort of the perils of making a a doc with three people and no real crew and no budget. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, if and when people get a chance to see it in festivals, or if you choose to just release it online or whatever, yeah. I would certainly recommend that anyone of the 10 people listening right now check it out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if any of our backers are listening, by the way, uh, one of the one of the things that we promised to backers at a certain level was that they would get DVDs probably in early to mid-2016, and that is still on track. They will have Probably any... late spring, uh, early summer, we're going to be making those DVDs, and certainly by mid-summer, we're going to be trying to ship them out to Don't people. lose hope. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed watching it and um did you enjoy will's bed bugs and, uh, yeah that was if you want to watch trying. it just drop us a line personally we'll hook you up yeah you can i guess you could get in touch with us at filmed in canada gmail.com or um search sad hill media sad hill media.com is it sad hill cemetery.com sad hill cemetery.com uh hit the guys up and they can send you a link as they did with me heck yeah uh, so transitioning, mm -hmm. segueing, um, finding a way to jump into our next topic. Speaking of documentary, that is also a documentary. That is, that is an awkward like a podcast. Uh, no, actually, I wanted to talk about lifeguard. Oh boy! Okay. Yeah. So, um, did you see lifeguard? I did. Yeah. Yeah. You sent me a link. I think that was the f that was the first thing of yours that I had watched um, back when uh, we exchanged a few emails a few months ago. Tonight on Grilling the Host. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so this was a short film that played at VIF this year. Yeah. And uh, I didn't catch it at VIF. I, for what, I, I guess for the past two years I've been going to the festival. I haven't mm -hmm. checked out any of the, the short programming, but I'm definitely interested in doing that this year because I've been getting more, like I mentioned, like we briefly touched on Norman McLaren and yeah. I've just been more interested in, in the short film format, and it seems like, at least for for smaller cinematic communities, short films are, are a way to be more expressive because you don't have the budgets and, yeah. and that kind of thing. So it's, a lot of the Canadian shorts that I've seen, I've, I've been really impressed And not just that, but for a lot of us, it's the only way we can make stuff. Exactly, yeah. So um, It's the only way that you don't spend six months of your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like life we're going to make films this year, but... We're not going to be making a feature in 2016. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so Lifeguard, a uh, short film about a female lifeguard mm -hmm. who works on English Bay in Vancouver. And I guess yeah. it's sort of a day in the life or a couple days in the life. Um, as she, I guess... Deals with this is the problem with life. Deal, <laughs> I got deal, into the festival. Deal, deal, <laughs> deals deals with the ennui of her existence. I, I'm just trying to. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to understand uh, my memory of it. I guess because I haven't watched it in a while. But it's sort of about the the human desire for structure. I would say um, that runs up against the uh, chaos of the universe, the uncontrolled, unpredictable chaos of day-to-day -day life and how no matter how much you try to structure those things um, inevitably like in some way or another chaos will prevail in a way that 
throws you off your game, so to speak. Yeah. That's what I would say. Yeah, so so I guess this this girl shows up to her job day in, day out, mm-hmm. but I think mostly through the sound design, it came across to me that she felt she she's she's sort of trapped in her situation and um, kind of lost at sea almost as as these waves are crashing in on her, so to speak. And she sort of gets shocked out of that state by having to save someone on this beach and um, and then walks home and discovers a man in a grocery store and I, I was kind of conf- I, 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 I found the ending a bit confusing mm-hmm. just in the in, in what it was trying to communicate okay um, damn it <laughs> that's the important bit yeah like well, I forget what he says, but but she she sees this guy every day as she walks to and from work, and he's just mm-hmm. sitting there doing nothing. And she says, "Well, like, why why are you just sitting here?" And then I forget what, what was it, what's his response. This interview is over. He says, "I don't." <laughs> he says, uh, "He says I don't know." Right. Yeah. Um, and that was actually inspired because I, every day I actually kind of walk by like for a few for a few days I you know when I walked to English Bay for like, you know, daily walk, et cetera. Um, I would walk by this like the same old guy in that, in that actual safely that we filmed at okay. um, on Davy Street. And I always wondered like, it's so sad, you know, why would you spend your days in a uh, Safeway of all places? I mean, there's a beautifully nice beach two blocks yeah, away. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing? And I realized, and I kind of had this urge to go and ask him. Yeah. And I realized like just doing that would be make me much sadder than that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that kind of was what, and then I kind of thought of this lifeguard character based around that, actually. And yeah. um, it's, it's sort of, uh, to me, the, the ending is kind of about trying to, add, you know, trying to grasp at these, at the unanswerable questions that you really can't ever have, have a straight answer for. Right. And it ends with her, I guess, kind of accepting that she's never going to have the answer. Right. That, that, that's kind of what I was aiming for. Um, people have gotten yeah. a crazy variety of things other than ending, which I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or nothing at all, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. No, it, yeah, I guess it, was, it wasn't that I got nothing out of it. It was just mm-hmm. that... Um, it's confusing. Well, it, well that I, my, my response was to feel confusion, I mm-hmm. guess, not to say that it itself was confusing. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, but I think that, that sort of speaks to where the character is because she yeah. is trying to understand her place. And yeah, it's, it's sort of an acceptance of confusion, I guess, is how I would spin that. Um, when I was uh, talking, I mean, I mean, it was always in the script. I mean, one of the first things that Devin thought of was that the last shot would be the lifeguard sort of goes from being despondent to hearing this guy say, I don't know, and then smiling. Yeah. Um, but when I was talking to the actors, uh, the actor uh, who played the old man, Kirk, was... Um, we were sort of talking about like how is he responding to this, why is he responding to this, and we really had to hash it out, and it was a tough one because originally it was just going to be he's miserable and says I don't know, right? Yeah. But um, just as we talked it through, it sort of became clear that he should be willing to laugh at himself, yeah. and that's almost what prompts her to laugh at herself. And so, to me, the moment signifies you know we're all in this together, we're all confused about why we do what we do every yeah. day. I mean it. The attempt in is uh, that uh, hopefully you get a sense that her job is sort of her life, where she sort of has her job and then she goes home and not much else really happens to her. And mm-hmm. then she sort of has a very uh, uh, sort of antiseptic 
uh, home life, very mm -hmm. controlled. Um, I'm glad you picked that up from the sound design. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was, I was uh, like, that was the, the aspect of it that kind of struck me the most. But yeah. the... Um, That's the first time anybody has ever, like, without me talking to them about... I'm sound designing this movie for months before I just commented on my sound design, so that's neat. <laughs> nice. Um, the, but the other thing that really struck me was the, the location that it's set in. I mean, I've walked along English Bay a thousand times, but the, the image when she's jumping into the, into the ocean and it's this wide shot and you just see her as this tiny little... Yeah almost Lego piece that's Devin's baby yeah yeah that was that I, that was just a really striking image and and something I'm just interested how you even went about that because like I don't even I don't know anything about how you make a movie like if you need permits or like if anyone yeah. knew that you were doing that so essentially like I had to kind of wrangle with the park board to get permits for two days of shooting and because we had such a tiny crew there was like seven people on that set uh, not including actors, and I kind of fudged that to the park people. Um, <laughs> uh, but we technically qualify as a documentary, so I got cheap permits. But oh, um, so I was basically able to like not. We didn't even close off the beach because there's a lot of shots where you see a wide shot and there's like a hundred people there, and that's all just people who were technically on set. You know, yeah. but we, you know, we put up signs about. But I don't think many people noticed. <laughs> um, no. Uh, which is good for us because they all, you know, they provided background. But yeah. um, the wide shot kind of was conceived because I wanted. You know, the cliche of the moment when you go to, you know, intensity is, you know, when you have the intense action beat, it's you, you, you hand down, and, following, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and I wanted to kind of go out and contextualize the action instead of kind of the action, emphasizing how the action is intense, emphasize how the action um, suddenly makes her feel, you know, like it almost puts her in her place in the universe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where she's just this little, she's, it makes her feel helpless, I hope. Yeah. Um, but uh, actually filming it was kind of a nightmare because um, we, we actually filmed it twice. We filmed it in early in the morning uh, from a slightly higher angle. Um, but it looked like it looked like six in the morning and there was no one on that beach. And oh, after okay. like a whole scene of having people on that beach and you know, it didn't work. Um, yeah. So we filmed it on the second day again, but a lot none of our none of our actual like actors who played the mother and the kid were actually there. Okay. So we just dressed our makeup artists up in the same clothes yeah. <laughs> and put her in the shot and also, it was overcast. Yeah. Uh, the clouds had rolled in, so I ended up to do, to do my first ever sky replacement in post yeah. okay. on that shot. So it was very, and then also Meredith, our very intrepid lead actress, yeah. uh, she uh, she had to do the swimming shot like three times. The water was <laughs> extremely cold, and it was a very physically yeah. taxing yeah. shot. This was like late August when the water gets pretty cold. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I felt so bad about that, yeah. but uh, you know. I like she was a trooper, yeah. yeah. And it, I, that's a good example of, um, of using your using your limitations to your advantage. You know, one thing I try to remind myself about is that there's two, two general rules I have when I think about, oh God, I'll never get a, I'll never get real money to make my films. Is one, if you you know, the technology to make films is so democratized and so cheap these days yeah. that if you can't think of a way to express the kind of story that you're kind of trying to tell or the kind of scene that you want to do, then more or less, like, that's your lack of creativity, not your lack of resources. Right. And in turn with that, I have a, a sort of motto, which is you make art with the tools you don't have, not, sorry, you make art with the tools you do have, not the tools you don't. Right. Um, and... I think Lifeguard has a few good examples for one thing like we have all like the beach was extremely crowded especially on the first day of shooting when we got most of the crowd specific stuff yeah. and that was 
if we had more than seven people on our crew, then you would have had tons of people looking at the camera, mm -hmm. or we wouldn't have been able to get the documentary permit, and like so we would have been a bigger apparatus. And but the way it is, we got all these free extras basically, and we had no lighting. We didn't have a, not a single electric light was on that set, right? Yeah. yeah. And like, uh, so it, no one noticed us. <laughs> yeah. And the other the other uh, thing is in that big wide shot of her sprinting for the water, and you've got this sort of geometrical shapes of the city on one side of the frame and sort of the flat chaos of the sea on the other. Yeah. Um, I mean, that shot, we couldn't, it would have cost us a lot of money to go in the, in the water with her, right? Sure. Whether we were on a boat and had to get like protective gear for the camera or whether we went in to the water with her. If you get different insurance, different permits, have a life grown on set, like as soon as the camera goes mm -hmm. onto the water, you are in trouble and yeah. you, your movie your budget doubles so yeah. that was not just doubles it would have been a lot more yeah yeah, yeah. and, and uh, we would have had to have like special insurance because technically the kid was never supposed to go in the water but. right <laughs> but you know what no one has ever people bring up that shot and they praise it right and they don't praise it for overcoming limitations because you're not thinking about the limitations which is hopefully what's happening is you're using the resources you have to get the shot yeah. in the most expressive and creative way possible. And that's yeah, I, I, I mean, it just it's, it just struck me immediately because it, yeah. it was just something that I hadn't seen before. Really. Yeah, fantastic. Not to say that you guys weren't stealing it from somewhere else because you probably were to, to a certain extent, but I just hadn't seen it myself, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. We were stealing from uh, an old uh, Western called The Big Country, actually. Yeah, yeah I, I remember you mentioning yeah. John Ford. I forgot about we stole it from. Yeah, <laughs> there's a fight scene in The Big Country, for those who haven't seen it, where um, Gregory Peck is fighting Charlton Heston and... Uh, Basically, as the fight gets more intense, the shots get wider and wider um, because the film is an anti-violence screed about how violence makes people small, yeah, um, essentially, yeah. and like that's that's turned literal in, in those frames. And I think it's my, one, probably my favorite fight scene I've seen, you know, in a movie maybe. Um, cool. And uh, yeah, but um, one thing I want to kind of bring up is, you know, uh, is how we essentially shot the movie twice. Um, yeah. We 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 did what I call a pre-make, uh, which is we. First, we we storyboarded it in a really fun, uh, in a really fun like kind of shot listing session. I mean, we all had and we had the thing really worked out as worked out as we had in any of our previous films. Mm -hmm. But then what we did was we just went down the beach with a few of our friends and my dad, and uh, with shot, just a DSLR in hand, just mm -hmm. DSLR because because the tripod was left on a bus, <laughs> and, um, and uh, we got it back. But um, we uh, we shot the whole film shot for shot uh, with just n no crew and stand-ins and we edited it together um, which on one hand let us cut all the shots that we didn't end up using in the edit um, it let us um, kind of finesse shots that weren't quite working it let us know which parts of shots we needed uh, so essentially we shot a film that should have taken three or four days in less than two days yeah. um, which was like uh, which we couldn't have done without pre-making and the budget, you know, that instantly it's half the budget gone. Yeah. You know, so um, it, a lot of lifeguard was kind of a, more than anything for me, it was a exercise in figuring out how to make a movie kind of with the product we wanted, but mm -hmm. within certain limitations. Yeah. And, and, and when you do that, it leaves you more time for other things. For example, um, one thing I sort of regret about Lifeguard is I didn't plan the sound out at more actually in advance in that the cuts were all sort of predetermined and the final cut of the film is very close to that pre-make, short of the changes that we intended to make. Um, 
but the sound ended up being something that changed significantly as uh, we went along in post, where originally all the dialogue was very clear in the mix and, and there was sort of a more dynamic mix of different sounds coming in. And as I went along, um, there was sort of one take where I was unhappy with the performances. And um, so I brought in more of the C and so I just covered up their voices. And when you cover up, when somebody's voice is drowned out, like you can still make out what they say, but somehow the acting is better. Right, right, right. Um, but it also, it, it just felt right. Like it felt right for people to be buried under this stuff. Yeah. Um, and for her to be the only distinct voice. And so like you said, it sort of isolates her from her surroundings by just smothering her in sound all mm -hmm. the time. And if we had been working out the editing, of the film constantly as we were working out the editing of We Three Heathens, um, which was like a, a full-time job in itself. I never would have had the time to dedicate the thought and work to making Lifeguard sound work. Yeah, so. Lifeguard, I think we probably, we probably spent about three weeks in pre-production, then two days in production, and then two weeks in post, but the two weeks in post were spread out over the course of eight months, because yeah, yeah. we did kind of in between our sessions of doing everything it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which, which is fun, but... Um, yeah, we should make more films that fast. Yeah. <laughs> this no, summer. That's, the, I, that's the, the comedy I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah. So, I guess to wrap things up for this portion of the podcast, uh, I th we'd mentioned previously that you guys have a website where your work can be found. So that's at... SadhillCemetery.com. SadhillCemetery.com. And some of our work, um, unfortunately, like one of the kind of sad, weird side effects of kind of being indie filmmakers without distribution, but who submit to festivals is that like things usually take like years to get online because the minute you post something online, it can't get into ninety percent of festivals. Oh, okay. So like, it's it's really tough to like actually distribute work. That said, though, you know if if you like it's, it's, if you were to get into contact with us, we could probably gonna send it. Exactly. If you yeah. connect with us personally, then we can privately send you a link if you promise to share it discreetly. But like, yeah, of course, like we'll, if anybody comes to me and says, I want to watch your film, I am going to like move heaven and earth to make it so that person <laughs> can watch my film. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you for participating in this first of two podcasts and uh, we'll be back soon for some discussions on some Alan King documentaries. For our end of the podcast, um, you can find us at filmedincanada at gmail.com. You can leave us a review on iTunes. We still only have the one for my mom. She gave us five stars, though, so uh, that's good. Why would you want more reviews? Your average is perfect. <laughs> well, it doesn't actually show up as an average yet oh. because they need more than five reviews. In order to show an average, so oh I'll, I'll be sure to review this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I'm on Twitter at Married to a Fly. If you guys want to give out your Twitter handle, yeah, before. I'm uh, at Sad Hill Will. I'm Sad Hill Devin, and that's Devin with an A. An A, yes, I have that rare spelling. There you go. Uh, all right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and or joining me, and. Um, We'll catch you next time. See ya. Thanks, Herman. Thank you.